Welcome to the History Trust Summer Podcast Series. This podcast is based on the original recording from our Talking History program. You can read more about the podcast, its content and speaker in the show notes via your preferred podcast platform. Talking History was created on Ghana land and the History Trust acknowledges the First Nations peoples of South Australia, whose connection to country and living cultures began in time immemorial and continues to the present. I decide to lock myself away. It's to look after my brain, I say, to lower the anxiety that lives at a high hum in my bones. During this time, I don't do much. I write with my dog beside me, feet twitching as she sleeps. I see my parents go to work twice a week to make rent thinking my mind that a seizure has not yet occurred in front of students. If I were religious, I would pray to anyone for this to continue. And most of all, I try to sleep at night. It's a stripped down existence, but it is still whole. I begin to relax and feel the ligaments and muscles unclench within me. At some point, the message of healing rest becomes lost and I begin to fear being outside. I worry that to be present and fully engaged, to take everything around me in will bring on the seizure. I morph from someone who is sick to this meek thing. I try not to remember how I used to be vibrant, a force out in the world. I'm not sure if I'm healing or whether I'm becoming a fractured version of myself. I wonder how I fit within this illness. Is recovery meant to hurt or am I becoming sicker? So hello everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. It's such a pleasure to be a part of the Talking History series. I thought I'd start this talk by briefly introducing myself, particularly that this is my debut book. A Hysteria is both a memoir of my experience of illness and a historical account of four women whose lives have intersected with the idea or diagnosis of hysteria. Tonight, I thought I'd touch on the lives of three of the women I talk about in the book, Edith Jacobson, Mary Glover and Blanche Whitman. As a content warning, this lecture discusses mental illness in Edith and Blanche's story, sexual abuse and suicide is mentioned, although no details are given. Feel free to step out as you need to. Mary Glover's experience of illness embodied the political struggle between religion and science. Mary was 14 years old in London, 1602, when her illness took. Mary lived with her Puritan parents in Little All Hallows in Fame Street, wrote physician Stephen Bradwell, the man who witnessed and then recorded her illness. Mary's home would later burn down in the Great Fire of London. Although much has been written about Mary's illness, she herself is unknown. I have no image of her to hold on to. I don't even know the colour of her hair. Her name is barely used in the documents about her. 
the words poor creature often substituted. The one part in Bradwell's document that gives any hint of Mary's selfhood is when she's in the depths of her illness, experiencing much pain and is given an orange. Bradwell writes that, the maid took it so kindly that she kept it in her hand, smelling often unto it, the most part of that day. Through all the writing detailing every extreme and lull in her illness, I just see a young girl seeking comfort, unsure of how to live through the deep pain of her circumstances. Mary first became ill after her neighbour Elizabeth Jackson, feeling that Mary was a poor influence on her daughter, locked Mary in her home one afternoon and berated her for over an hour. Elizabeth eventually released her, but not before saying that she was wishing an evil death to light upon her. From this moment, Mary experienced debilitating, quote, fits. A lot is lost in transcription. The physicians who wrote about her don't care much to note the why, but focus on the symptoms they're left with. At times, Mary's throat would close so she could not eat. She experienced intermittent low vision. During her, quote, fits, her body would thrash and convulse. Her side and limbs would periodically become paralyzed. Over the days, as Mary's illness worsened, her parents had the church bells ring for her in case she died. Hearing the bells, Elizabeth Jackson was heard to say to another neighbour, I thank my God he hath heard my prayer and stopped the mouth and tied the tongue of one of mine enemies. Yet Mary did not die. She was kept alive harshly by her parents. Food was forced down her throat to keep her body functioning. On two occasions, Mary fell deeply ill after seeing Elizabeth's daughter. Mary's illness continued to worsen. As it did, Elizabeth was taken to the sheriff to meet with Mary. Upon seeing Elizabeth, Mary went into another, quote, fit. Witnesses heard a voice coming from her nostrils. They interpreted the sound as a command, hang her, hang her. The neighborhood as well as the church and medical community was split. Some thought she was faking her illness. Others believed Elizabeth was a witch who had cursed the young girl. Trials were even staged. On one occasion, the chief's legal officer, John Croak, required a woman to enter Mary's room dressed as Elizabeth as a test. Mary did not seize until Elizabeth, disguised in another's clothes, entered later. Croak then wished to test if Mary could experience pain, reasoning that if she was possessed, she would react. Mary was still when Croak put a hot pin to her cheek and burnt her hand with some paper he'd set alight. Croak thought she felt nothing, but I wonder if it was merely convenient for him to believe this. Movement does not indicate one's ability to feel. The calls of which were heard and Elizabeth went to trial before the judge. Defending her as a witness was physician Edward Jordan. Jordan did not know Elizabeth or Mary personally, but hearing about Mary, he took it upon himself to testify that she was experiencing hysterico passio. This illness, Jordan testified, 
was, quote, monstrous and terrible to behold and of such a variety as they can hardly be comprehended within any method or bounds, end quote. His position was firm. Mary was ill, not possessed. Yet despite Jordan's evidence, Judge Anderson found Elizabeth guilty of witchcraft. She was sentenced a year behind bars and she was to visit the pillory multiple times. Yet Elizabeth never served her sentence. Unhappy with Anderson's judgment, various members of the community campaigned for her release. After the trial, Jordan wrote and published a pamphlet building on his testimony. The pamphlet was the first to argue that hysteria came from the brain, not the uterus. Yet his writing was ignored in favour of more traditional Puritan views on witchcraft and possession. After the trial, Mary underwent an exorcism with her parents and fellow Puritans praying by her bedside to rid her of the devil for days on end. Mary struggled through episodes of increasing pain and intensity while pastor after pastor prayed for her. In the moments when she could speak, Mary prayed for herself. In a report written by John Swan, a divinity student, called A True and Brief Report of the Grievous Vexation by Satan or Mary Glover of Thames Street in London and of her deliverance from the same by the power of Lord Jesus blessing his own ordinance of prayer and fasting is this description. There she remained without motion, her head hanging downward, somewhat inclining towards the shoulder, her face and colour deadly, her mouth and eyes shut, her body stiff and senseless, so that there were those that thought, and I think we might all have said, behold, she is dead. Mary remained still until in a moment, quote, life lifting up her hands and stretching them wide asunder as high as she could reach the first word she uttered was he is come he is come end quote her family sitting around mary cried and she began to pray thanking god for her deliverance from an illness she believed was evil itself Blanche Whitman was not known by name, but as the queen of hysterics. She is depicted here in Andre Brule's painting. Besides the nurse next to her, she is the only woman in the room. The painting was created in 1887 to capture neurologist Jean Charcot's Tuesday sessions, a public showing of hysterical women Blanche is collapsing into the arms of a doctor. To Blanche's right is Charcot in a black suit with matching black bow tie. Blanche, admitted to the Salpatriere as Marie Whitman, was 18 years old when she walked through those hospital gates. By then, she had seen five of her eight siblings die, as well as her mother, who died quickly and unexpectedly. Her father, an abusive man who had attempted to throw Blanche out of a window when she was a child, had been admitted to St. Anne, an asylum where he would live until his death. Too old to be cared for in a foster system like her younger siblings, 
Blanche returned at 15 to live with a fur merchant whom she had worked for as an apprentice between the ages of 14 and 12. She had previously escaped him after the older man made aggressive sexual advances and attempted to harm her. But after her mother's death, Blanche was forced back to her abuser, who abused her over the next eight months until she fled again to become a hospital worker. Throughout Blanche's life, she experienced attacks where she would convulse and have tremors and episodes of nervousness. From this to her life at Salpatriere, Blanche became a medical model in all senses. She switched from her birth name Marie to Blanche. As literary scholar Asti Hustvert writes in Medical Muses, this inexplicable shift in nomenclature seems to foreshadow the transformation in her identity that would take place over the next decade. At first, Blanche's symptoms fell into those ordinarily categorised as hysteric. After a violent episode where Blanche tore her sheets and broke windows, Charcot locked her away in an asylum. This was a punishment. Blanche, writes Husford, lost almost all of this freedom to move about and spent far more time confined to a cell. Writer Jules Clarity, who spent time at Salpatriere by invitation from Charcot, wrote in his novel that to descend one degree further into that hell when human reason has been swallowed up in a black nothingness. This was the greatest fear of the hysterics who were still free to come and go. After seven months in the asylum, Blanche was returned to Charcot's ward where her symptoms became increasingly prototypical, more in line with Charcot's definition of hysteria. Unlike before her incarceration in the asylum, Blanche now experienced what Charcot called hysterogenic zones. When these parts of Blanche's body were pressed, she would become ill. And so, as Husford writes, Blanche was held up as living proof of the Salpatriere school's theories, the embodiment of Charcot's symptomology. There is contention about the nature of Blanche's illness, questions arising of fabrication and deception. Personally, I think that Husford says it best. Human beings, as a rule, adapt to fit social norms and patients adapt to medical standards. Blanche, I think, did not knowingly alter her behaviour and thus illness, but her body did what it must to survive. Her performance directly affected her quality of life. For a woman whose movements were restricted to the Salpatriere, who had known loss and violence, I imagine that dramatising her illness before others would be worth the small luxuries she was afforded in return. Blanche lived most of her life at the Salpatriere, oscillating between life as a patient and an employee. Being around Charcot and his patients shaped her and her illness, and because of this influence she came to be Charcot's most famous patient. Her life was transformed. She moved from hardship to another more forgiving existence. Blanche died in 1913 at 54 years old, leaving behind only the photographs, drawings and paintings of her time as the Queen of Hysterics.
So I come to Edith through her work on depersonalization, which is an aspect of my own illness. Edith was born in 1897 in Chernow, Poland. Her father, Jacques, was a kindly man, a GP having previously been a military doctor in the First World War. Her older brother, Eric, was a pediatrician, and Edith felt that this too was her path, and she was drawn to psychoanalysis. After completing her training, Edith was drawn to child analysis and development. It was 1930 and her practice grew quickly, from children to adults from all spheres of society, especially working class patients. Throughout her life, Edith kept her rate low so that psychoanalysis was available to everyone. Hitler came to power in 1933 and many of her peers, also Jewish leftists, left Berlin. Edith stayed and continued her work with the Berlin Psychoanalytic Society, but now her courses were not written in the official program. Edith continued teaching and secretly treated patients in the leftist resistance organisation, New Beginnings. But in September 1935, the arrest of New Beginnings members led to difficulty for Edith her contact details were found in the home of a patient. In October, Edith was arrested. Despite her colleagues and family's efforts to raise money for a lawyer and the absence of evidence, she was indicted. And when she refused to speak about a patient's circumstances, the Gestapo were, in her own words, very furious. In 1936, she was sentenced to serve two and a quarter years in Ja'ur Women's Prison. In prison, Edith did not stop. Her life had halted in profound ways, but she continued to work. While she had previously written on the ego, Edith was now writing about the impact of incarceration on the ego. A key aspect of this was the depersonalization around her. In today's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, depersonalization is defined as persistent or a current experiences of feeling detached from and as if one were outside observer of one's mental processes or body. In her paper on incarceration and depersonalization, Edith learns that in some cases, strong and intelligent women with a capacity for sublimation may find in being incarcerated that they undergo a truly constructive development where a new mature structure in integration of the personality occurs. While in prison, Edith eventually fell ill and so she was hospitalized in Leipzig. Edith was lucky as this was a time, according to her own understanding of politics, that the Nazi regime did not want prisoner deaths. By chance, her older brother was working in the hospital in Leipzig the resistance, along with friends of her brother, planned an escape. Edith was granted a consultation with a doctor in Berlin, where she left a suicide note to evade the Gestapo. She then travelled to Munich, received a passport belonging to an analyst friend, then escaped to Czechoslovakia. In Prague, Edith underwent surgery and once she recovered, emigrated to New York. It was there she built a groundbreaking career in psychoanalysis. 
So Edith spent some of her time in prison writing poetry, a habit that continued beyond incarceration into her life in America. Her poems are now buried, accessible but inaccessible in that administrative way, kept in boxes in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. In writing this book, I emailed them and waited for a reply, expecting nothing. But then 30 photographs of Edith's poetry were sent to my email. One of these, untitled, is in English, and I'll read it now. The time, this wonder full of mystery, abiding now, escaping then our mind. The time bewilders still our aims to find, light in the darkness, and our problems key. But time creates the anniversary, to be a symbol as we are inclined, to promise and fulfil the kindest kind, to celebrate our dearest good, to be. So be aware of the eternal youth, which we are representing, we the truth, that where is love, there always is the prime. You shall grow young forever, dear old boy, with us the youth, and thus you shall enjoy the timeless happiness of living time. I think finding something like this is the joy of working with archives, working with history. I thought now I would turn to material outside the book and that's looking at South Australia's own history. I did a brief look online at the State Library of South Australia archive and found this drawing of the quote, lunatic asylum from 1860. It had the below description. Set in six acres of land on the corner of Hackney and Botanic Roads, the asylum was built in 1851 to an English Tudor revival style attributed to colonial architect William Bennett Hayes. The building was of stone with brick trimmings, lattice windows and timber verandas. In 1937, the Botanic Gardens ceded four acres on its western boundary to the hospital in exchange for the lunatic asylum and grounds. As early as 1866, the asylum had become overcrowded and considered below standard, but it was not until 1902 that the last patient was moved to the Parkside Asylum. It was used as an infectious diseases hospital until the main buildings were demolished in 1938. What remains of the asylum are Yarrabee House, part of the walling and the morgue, which is used by the Botanic Gardens as a tool shed. So I bring this up because while it's always interesting to look into the history of where we live, it presents a lot of what I was found while researching my book. In this write-up, only one individual was mentioned, but not by name, the last patient. The history centres on the building, the place, not the people who lived within it. And in looking at the South Australian Library catalogue, all primary information is about the building itself. In both writing the book and looking at this particular image, I questioned, what of history do we keep? What do we record? and whose stories do we tell?
On that note, I'd like to talk about why I felt it was necessary to contextualise my own experience within the stories of the women I write about. Carmen Maria Mercado writes in In the Dream House that through writing her memoir of a past abusive relationship, she, quote, enters into the archive that domestic abuse between partners who share a gender identity is both possible and not uncommon and that it can look something like this. I speak into the silence. I toss the stone of my story into a vast crevasse, measure the emptiness by a small sound." End quote. Mercado sees herself as entering an archive that had previously been something unspoken. My experience is different, of course, to hers, but as I think we all do in reading memoir, I see myself refracted through her. Hysteria is an archive of my illness over the two years in which it's set. As I've discussed tonight, it's not only my archive alone, but charts Mary, Edith and Blanche's lives too, mapping out connections and divergences within the context of different times and identities. What has become clear to me in writing the book is the importance and power of feeling a part of a community of shared stories. Edith, Mary and Blanche are ancestors, touchstones, that allow me to realise that while I'm an individual experiencing an illness, I am not alone. So thank you so much to everyone for coming tonight and thank you to the folks at the History Trust of South Australia for tonight too. If you're interested in the book, there are copies available at Imprints, Gimmicks, Dylan's and of course online. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This is just one of the many stories of South Australia's history from the past, unfolding today and now preserved for the future. To read the show notes about this podcast or to access the original recording, search Talking History in your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to subscribe to hear the latest episodes. You can also visit history.sa.gov.au to learn more about the History Trust, our collections, public programs and museums, and how we are giving the past a future now.